with my hate watching and listening, I listen to Tim Pool. And he, every single episode, talks about cancel culture and just like, oh, all us right-wingers are censored. And then in one episode, he said that any pro-Palestinian organizations at university should lose any scholarships, any funding, and should, can be kicked out of school. Every episode's about freedom of speech and cancel culture, but then he's more than happy to say shit like that. I think to right-wingers, cancel culture is just when people tell them they don't like them. Like, people are just yeah. like, hey, Tim Pool, you suck, man. And he's yeah. like, that's cancel culture. Like, you're doing cancel <laughs> culture. And then, like, there's an actual instance of cancel culture where it's like, all right, we found a list of 18-year-olds, and we're going to make sure they never get a job in their entire life because they stood with Palestine. Yeah, Serious shit. And they're all like, oh, don't really care about this. It's just as long as people are nice to me in my YouTube comments. Hey, listen, so neither I nor Tim Pool actually believe in unbridled, unmitigated free speech in the broadest sense of the word. But at least I'm honest about it. Hello and welcome back to the Intervention Podcast. It's Nick here with Levi and tonight we're joined by two special guests. No, I'm just kidding. We got our co-host Steve here as well. It's just been a while since we've seen him. <laughs> we're also joined by Joe Mayall. Joe was with us earlier this year. We just were actually hashing that out. In fact, when that episode was released, but we did one of my personal favorite older episodes in our catalog on the Anglo-American intervention into Greece, which really kicked off the Cold War. So if you haven't heard that one yet, go back and check that one out. But Joe, thanks for being here tonight. How's everything over at Joe Wrote? It's going good, yeah. Thanks for having me. I've been discussing Palestine a lot, um, which I know y'all are covering. Happy to be back. It's uh, It's been too long. Definitely, man. Well, we're glad to have you here. And you know, you had reached out with one of the articles that you just put out recently title is on Palestine. The media is doing exactly what it did with Iraq. And, you know, we got to talk and we've been talking for a while about figuring out how to best get you back on. And this seems like a really timely piece to have a discussion on propaganda, media literacy, atrocity propaganda, and how imperialists really repeat the same playbook. And we just need to demonstrate that it's not going to work on us anymore. So articles like this, I think, go a long way towards helping with that. But with that said, I think we can just get into the conversation. Levi, I know you had some introductory notes and maybe you can kick us off. We are recording this at 9 p.m. on November 28th, 2023. So hopefully nothing that we say here isn't universal enough to be applicable. But if we state some things that are no longer true in a week from now, that would be why. The nature of the beast. Especially in the midst of what is not a ceasefire, whatever they want to call it. Yeah, look at the West Bank. Uh, what are we going with now? Humanitarian pause, partial timeout, 30-second timeout, whatever we're, nomenclature we're using. <laughs> so for this discussion on propaganda in the Western media, we should come together with a working definition of propaganda. We want to think about this in terms of the Iraq war and the, as we stated, the humanitarian pause currently going on in the Palestinian genocide in Gaza. Even before we get to those specifics, I fear there's no better place to start than a working definition of propaganda. We might as well start with Joe's own definition in his November 21st article. Quote, simply put, propaganda is a selective telling of facts with the goal of shaping a narrative. So while the sentence is great, there's clearly way more going on in propaganda as a concept than any single sentence could ever expect to carry. So for speaking to my own understanding of propaganda, 
And Joe's article does get into this. Propaganda production includes four interrelated concepts. So there's the outright lies, selective use of facts, manipulating the structure of a narrative, and censorship. So each of these concepts in of themselves deserve some of their own unpacking, but every piece of propaganda fills one, two, or even all of these criteria. So does anybody have anything to add or qualify in this expanded definition of propaganda? I'll just say, Levi, I, I think your definition is better than mine. I think it uh, really encapsulates the different, different types of propaganda we're all forced to deal with. Um, the one thing that I'm reminded of, and I think about this a lot now, how people take issue with the term genocide of when we use it to describe what's happening in Palestine. And people will say like, oh, well, it's not genocide because the population is increasing or whatever. And you have to remind them that like, actually, in order for something to be genocide, it only needs to commit one of five acts and any of them, not all of them. And I think that's the same with like what you detailed in propaganda. I can totally see someone saying like CNN isn't propaganda because it, it didn't do number four out of your list of four today or something like that. And so I think it's important to recognize that these aren't like steadfast requirements, but different tactics. And if any of them are present, I think it's a good a good indication that you're being propagandized. I think my initial like understanding of propaganda is that it's bad and that it's something that we don't do. It's something that enemies do. And just doing this podcast and reading history more as I got older, my understanding of what propaganda is changed a little bit. And that propaganda isn't inherently bad in and of itself, right? Like propaganda is a useful tool, but part of the analysis of propaganda is understanding the motives and the powers behind whatever piece of propaganda you're analyzing at that time. Yeah, I assume the first time anyone heard the word propaganda was to do with, at school at least, was to do with Goebbels, right? I mean, that was the first time I remember ever talking about propaganda was what he, you know, the stuff that he put out in, in Nazi Germany. And again, pasted as like, these bad people do this, we don't do this. You're propagandizing the population even, even at school. Curriculum can be, I, I think, is, is a form of propaganda as well. Yeah, and to stick with the sort of four different facets of propaganda, I think the one concept of propaganda that really is a four-letter word are when outright lies are the basis of propaganda. Because that's really, I mean, I don't want to say it's inexcusable. There are times when lying is acceptable. I'm sure we all did it last week during Thanksgiving in order to keep the peace on some level. But outright lying and presenting it as truth is a different sort of beast. It's a form of propaganda that I think we try to avoid in our own political lives because it's so easy to undermine once it's proven to be outright lies. Well, I think then you're dealing with almost like a different form or like a subset of propaganda when you get into that territory. And we did an episode on this, I think, last year or earlier this year, but atrocity propaganda, right? Like where you basically put this outright unverified lie out there, which makes some group of people look barbaric or animalistic. And then you slowly walk that back. And again, that's just an example of it. But I think that relies on some of these, not in all cases, but outright lies or at least gross embellishment of actual events. Yeah. And I think the the power of those lies can't be understated, right? Like one thing that I'm sure all of you have 
with the lie that came out following the October 7th attack that uh, Hamas decapitated 40 babies, right? Like, we all know that was a lie. Now that, like, pro-Zionists know it's a lie, they're like, yeah, it's not true, but it doesn't matter because Hamas would do it anyway, right? Or they did something else, right? And it, like, the power of this lying and this propaganda that creates a narrative it's so deep that even when you disprove the lie and show people, they will still believe it. Right. And I think that when we're talking about propaganda. We have to realize if I believe it was you who just said like curriculum is propaganda. I think that's huge. Right. Like most Americans and I would imagine most Brits come up with just being propagandized from grades, kindergarten through probably through the end of college. Right. And then they're told this lie and it fits in with the narrative and even when you show them it's 100% fabricated, they're still going to choose to believe it because it, they're just a creature of the media environment they're born into. The other thing I want to add to, just because you said like fits the narrative, I think we have to also recognize that the narrative isn't constructed in isolation, right? Just as we say the events of October 7th don't happen in a vacuum, like the entire narrative or Western understanding of the Levant, West Asia broadly, isn't based on a vacuum, right? Like there is some kind of like baseline understanding, which we would, I think, categorize as maybe like the common sense. Like if you talk to the average person, there's probably a lot of misunderstanding and Orientalist tropes, dehumanization that goes into understanding what these people are, right? And I think propaganda that comes out relies on these baselines, Joe, as you said, like, oh yeah, Hamas would do it anyway. Because in the psyche of a lot of people, because of years of propaganda prior to it, they expect that these are just barbaric terrorists, right? So again, that all of that history and curriculum, schooling, you know, Fox News that has gone into somebody's brain prior to that leads to the immediate acceptance of something like that as well. I know that sounds obvious on its face, but I mean, I think when we're combating propaganda, we have to understand how deep this goes. You know, you mentioned Fox News, but it's not just that now. Bill Maher, that bastion of of liberalism. Um, <laughs> he, uh, you know, on his show, like, because I watch all this shit that, of people that I hate, as you guys, as most of you guys know, he's really anti-religious, which I think, I think everyone knows, but he's, he's so pro-Israel and he just puts out there, he's like, well, these should be our friends because they're liberals in an area of the world where there's no liberals. He's like, Hamas kills gay people. They kill trans people. They do all this stuff. So as a liberal, you should automatically be pro-Israel. He's got no facts. He's got nothing else. Again, it's just propaganda. Don't get me started on Bill Maher. I'll just snap and throw my computer at the wall. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Steve's capacity to watch hate watch is astounding. It's concerning. (laughs) Are you okay, Steve? (laughs) I need an outlet. (laughs) (laughs) I think to pull back on the thread about public education gets to sort of a sticky issue with propaganda itself that we've talked about before on our show. As an activist historian, I honestly don't believe it's possible to tell anything approaching a political history without crafting a narrative, which means that you're selectively using facts because I'm not sitting here telling you a history while reading from a phone book list of facts. There's no way to get every single piece of information in any given story or narrative or history. So in this way, the crafting of any historical narrative is itself a piece of culture and a form of propaganda. At the same time, as activist historian Jesse Lemish argued in his 1968 piece, who will write a lift history of art while we are all putting our balls on the line? 
Uh, the title is itself meant to be a critique of the macho atmosphere of the new left, but putting beyond that, there is a difference between provocative political writing in history and writing a Marxist approach to medieval art. So I, I think it's also really difficult to understand the line between saying that all history, all cultural production is propaganda, because that kind of sullies the concept itself. Where are the lines between what we would consider to be something that's telling the truth versus propaganda. I think we were getting at it when we were talking about outright lies or a form of propaganda that can be dismissed. One thing I, I think, as we were talking about, Americans don't think they're propagandized because when people hear the word propaganda, they think like Nazi Germany, right? And that like, I don't know, Hitler can bench press 700 pounds for 25 reps or something like that. And because we, well, I was going to say because we don't have some of that in America, but I feel like Trump was pretty big on like, I hit seven holes in ones the other day. So, <laughs> but to, to put the jokes aside and make my point, I do think that something can be true and also propaganda. And the example I, I frequently come back to on this is World War II. During World War II, I have very little issue with the American government putting out like propaganda films to rally people for the war effort, right? And, you know, get people to make sure that they're not cheating on their rations or sabotaging in every, any way, whether intentional or implicit, um, because it was for a just cause, defeating fascism, de defeating Imperial Japan. But when you take World War II and look at the propaganda we've all been subjected to after the war, um, you know, everything from Band of Brothers to Call of Duty to Saving Private Ryan. I think that is very harmful propaganda because it went from having to defeat fascism to being used as a justification for America's global empire. I've had people push back on me and say like, oh, you know, something like Band of Brothers isn't propaganda. And the reason I like the idea of propaganda as a selective telling of facts is because it's exactly what it does, right? So it tells the story of what I would call brave Americans who went to Europe and fought German fascism. But it conveniently omits the sacrifices of the Soviet Union, which I believe were 20 to 30 times the casualty rate. Um, the Soviets took Berlin. That's never mentioned. World War II movies in America just seem to sort of end with no one really... It's sort of like, oh, yeah, we got like halfway through France and then the Nazis surrendered. And they never tell you the Soviets took Berlin because those movies are designed to make you believe that America should really rule the world because we're the ultimate good guys. And so to answer your question, Levi, about like, where is the line between like truth and propaganda? Um, I think to hit on your earlier point of you can't tell history without a narrative. I think it really is the narrative you're trying to tell and the cause in which you are basically telling that, right? I mean, this is oversimplistic, but propaganda for good causes is good. <laughs> propaganda for bad causes is evil. Just my take. And that's all subjective, right? Like a right-wing fascist isn't going to look at what's good propaganda in the same way that we look at what good propaganda might be, you know? And that just kind of is what it is. There is going to be no ground truth on history at some level, right? That like everybody is going to fundamentally agree on. There are facts that happen, but how you interpret those things, the motivations behind them, that matters ultimately. when we're talking about geopolitics, class struggle, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, I've mentioned this on the podcast a few times. 
and it goes to schooling and everything. But, you know, I went to a, a British school in the Netherlands, but it was, you know, we had like 40 or 50 different nationalities. And I did history as an A-level, which is just a, a couple of the grades in, in high school. And we were doing the Second World War and then touching on Russia a little bit. And like we learned, you know, Stalin helped us during the war, but then he was evil. And then how bad Stalin was and how bad communist Russia or USSR was. And in my second year, we had a Russian kid come into our class and he was like, what the hell are they teaching you guys? Stalin was a hero. He saved our country. And it was just, again, like the, the telling of facts and how you tell them. Just two completely different narratives. And it's, it was just interesting at a young age like that to see the perspective of someone else who'd learned a completely different narrative on their history. I always come back to this, which I feel like is really indicative of uh, the success that the Americans had with propaganda. And this is from a French poll that was taken um, in 2004. And they asked respondents, French people, who was, who was most responsible for defeating Germany in World War II? In May of 1945, 57% of French people said the Soviet Union. May of 1994, 49% said the United States, and only 25% said the Soviet Union, and it was even higher by 2005. The people who lived through World War II had really no question about it, right? They were like, yeah, it was, it was Stalin, it was the Soviets, they, were, they pulled the lion's chair. Fast forward 60 years of Cold War propaganda about how America and Britain were so great during World War II, all of a sudden those numbers have flipped. Um, and so you can literally like change the narrative of history through this. And I think it's just super important for everyone to understand how powerful this was or is. And to sort of take that in another direction, if you were reading histories in as late as the 1960s in college level American survey classes, the concept of race and slavery would basically not be mentioned as foundational aspects of American history. Whereas today, because of consistent research, popular culture, and some levels of propaganda, it would be ridiculous to take a college level history survey course and not mention the concept of race and slavery. So these things have effects, I guess, unless you're going to like a Bob Jones University or some sort of right wing American online university. Prager U. Yeah, Prager U, exactly. Those are the kind of places <laughs> where those things are really pushed up against because they're trying to propagate these things in the opposite direction. There is this consistent argument over what's called presentism in history that is also often labeled as propaganda or wokeism. So there's a whole rabbit hole we might not really want to go down that includes the sort of bullcrap concept of, quote, judging historical actors by the standards of today. But the reality is, when we're making these claims to history and making narratives that don't have a political bent to them or are the status quo, it's much easier to label those as the truth or just the narrative of history as opposed to claims which are trying to push forward understandings of history in order to be more inclusive and broader that are often labeled as propaganda and then maybe 40 years later have been incorporated into the sort of understanding of history as we know it. And that's just sort of a short way of saying that these activist claims pushing the limits of history are often the kind of things that get incorporated into the status quo over time or else get left behind. I think that's, like you said, Levi, not to go too deep into the uh, 
judging people by the history of their times. But I do think that's a form of propaganda, right? Like, you know, we talk so much in this country about how like Confederates weren't that bad, right? That you have to judge them by the standards of their time. And, you know, I think when I was coming up in school, we're all taught as Americans, like, you know, the Civil War was just between people who had their differences and they had to get along and both sides had good points. And then as I sort of left school and did my own sort of political education, you realize that like there have been abolitionists as long as there have been slavery. Like since before the Roman Empire, there have been people saying this is okay. You shouldn't own slaves. So when we say like we should judge people in 1865 by their own time to do that is to recognize that they are monsters. And the example I always think of with this is when people say we need to judge Christopher Columbus for the actions of his time. Then these people don't know that Christopher Columbus was imprisoned by his own men for the way he treated the natives, brought back to Spain and tried for his crimes against the natives. If we judge Christopher Columbus, quote unquote, by the standards of his time, that would mean stripping him of all his titles and driving him into exile. And it's just a it's just a it is propaganda to say, like, you know, we can't judge people 150 years ago like they didn't know what they were doing. Like they did know what they were doing. And there's been thousands of years of people telling them they're wrong and they do it anyway because it's their own interest. And then in the present time, propaganda is used to whitewash those interests. When we say by the standards of their time, it's as though we're saying, you know, by the judgment of his time, Thomas Jefferson owning slaves was not an incredibly unusual thing, right? But I would say all of his slaves probably had a problem with it. All the native people in the lands that we now call the United States had a problem with all of these things. It's completely silencing a massive uh, population when you try to claim that the standards of their time are somehow homogenous and exist without judgment whatsoever. And I think that gets into what I was talking about earlier about some inherent underlying assumptions that propaganda pieces rely on, right? In that scenario, Levi, we're not even considering the agency and humanity of black people, right? It's all centered around Jefferson. And I think when we bring it to the present day and we're talking about propaganda against those in the Middle East, whether that's uh, 40 years ago, 20 years ago or the current day. I mean, again, I think we need to try to unpack some of those inherent underlying assumptions to really combat propaganda effectively, too, to show that these people have agency and humanity and dispel some of these kind of rude assumptions that allow people so easily to glom on to these facts that are thrown out by mainstream media or the state department and i said facts and scare quotes for the listeners but i think that might be as good a segue as any to sort of move on to our personal experience with propaganda growing up especially as it relates to 9-11 the iraq war uh, in its relationship to the ongoing propaganda effort to increase the slaughter that's going on in palestine so just to start off i was really young on September 11th, 2001. And I was really not much further out of childhood by March 20th when we invaded Iraq. But what I remember about both of those things is really filtered to, through conversations with my parents. And they were the ones that were really reading newspapers, watching CNN, really imbibing these notions of propaganda against Afghanistan. So one of the very first things I actually remember was being picked up from school on September 11th. And I happened to be right next to an army recruiting center. 
as many schools are in this area. And seeing all of the soldiers that had recruited actually sitting outside and chain smoking. And my mother saying, you know, they're worried because we have to go to war with Afghanistan. And it was just this gut reaction that this attack had to be reciprocated with the massive loss of life. There was not really a question about that ever coming up. I even remember jokes by somebody like David Cross, who's generally considered to be uh, liberal, saying that even Ralph Nader would have invaded Afghanistan. That there was no question that war was an appropriate repercussion for that attack. Without any concept of why it might have happened and how to actually make it not ever happen again. I think that bought on. And I think that's the result of all the propaganda that was going on before it. Right. So as we all know, Iraq did not come onto the scene in 2003. You know, every president from I think all as far back as Reagan had like militaristic and antagonistic foreign policies towards Iraq. Until they gave them weapons to fight Iran. But yeah, <laughs> that's very much true. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that was, you know, that mindset that Levi was talking about of like someone has to pay is the result of Americans just being told, like, they hate us because of our freedom. Iraq is bad. We spent the whole 90s, like, looking for a bad guy after the Soviet Union. And then this horrible thing happened to us. And we were like, oh, this confirms everything we've told ourselves about ourselves. And they want to kill us because of some weird notion of liberty or something like that. And it really speaks to the effect that, like, you know, the propaganda that we see every night on on the news regarding Israel-Palestine, like this stuff is set in our national psyche, I think is the best way to put it, that we are just told over and over again from the very, from we're very young age, we're the greatest and that people who disagree with us are bad guys. And that really like seeps in, you know, the entire country was like, Hey, let's go, let's go find a majority Muslim country to, to bomb the shit out of them, you know? And they didn't really care who it was. Steve, why don't we break up the, uh, what's going to be another similar story for me and you can go with. I can show my age as a, <laughs> no longer a teenager yeah. when 9-11 happened. And you ain't fucking American either. Yeah. <laughs> I was at, at home for the summer when 9-11 happened, just about to go back to university. So I wasn't even in my first year of university anymore. And I remember like, I, I, my parents were out of town or something. And so I'd had a bunch of guys over, we'd had like a party the night before. So a bunch of people had stayed over and I remember it happening. And it was weird being over there then because it was, you know, it, it was like, it was, it wasn't happening to us and it was so far away. I remember waking up in the morning and like one of our friend's parents calling and being like, you should turn the TV on. So we turned it on. It was probably the afternoon by that point. But anyway, after the first plane hit, like in between one of my friends is like, should we go? play football or something. And my, my other friend was like, this is pretty big news. We should probably watch this. But so that was like the, just the immediate reaction that not being happening to us. So not having the vitriol that I guess a lot of people here probably had immediately. But at university, I remember Blair getting ton of backlash for supporting America as strongly as he did. And it just being very unpopular. And I remember like the last flat I lived in, in London after the war started, was owned by this Iraqi guy that we were renting off of. And I remember him coming over one day and being like, well, what do you guys think about this? And I mean, everybody in my apartment was just like, well, I think we should stay out of it. It was, it was obviously very different over there. So it was, there was a lot of criticism. I mean, I went to a pretty left-wing university, I think. So I, I would, you would expect that to be the case. 
yeah, Blair was not very popular at that time. I mean, for me, I think it was similar to you, Levi and Joe. I was like in early elementary school at that point in time. And it was kind of that classic thing where people talk about the teacher wheeling in the TV into the classroom to kind of see what's going on. You know, so we're watching this shit happen as young kids. And, you know, that does make an impact. And then you get sent home. And you know, I remember like a neighbor coming down and like the sentiment was someone's got to pay. Like someone's got to pay for this, for attacking us, you know? And I grew up in like a very rural, very white part of America, part of Pennsylvania. And I don't want to like do the whole thing where like, you know, everybody in this region is like a ignorant redneck or anything like that. But there was this pervasive feeling that someone has to pay for this, you know? And again, that has, it's much deeper than just like this region of the country being ignorant. I mean, it's propaganda, it's years of propaganda and education to think that like, they did hate us for our freedom. I mean, I think there was a true belief in that, you know? So I had a lot of work to to do to unpack a lot of that stuff to get to where I'm at right now. Absolutely. So we've talked about Hasbarah, the Israeli form of state propaganda on our show before. But I remember on our in our Hebrew school, this was well after the Oslo Accords were something we didn't really talk about anymore. We no longer needed to pretend that the Palestinians were human beings. But I remember our teacher telling us that now the United States is finally waking up to what we've always known about the Arabs, that you can never be safe, that there was a direct connection between Zionists at that moment and the fate of the United States, that as long as there is a liberal democracy, it's going to incite the ire of terrorists out of the Middle East, just have a propensity to hate. And that's really how I connect what's going on in Israel at any given time with that feeling that I recognized as a child around 9-11, that it's a constant feeling of exposure and ignorance and emotional lashing out to understand that there has to be a military solution because there is truly evil in these people's hearts, that they don't comprehend what's good for them. Therefore, we have to, and we're justified in thinking about them as less than human. Of course, that's speaking it way more bluntly than it's usually spoken of, uh, but not in the last month and a half. I remember correctly, I'm pretty sure right after October 7th, I can't remember if it was Netanyahu or another government official, but I distinctly remember him saying, this is Israel's 9-11 and Pearl Harbor. And I remember thinking like, okay, this man is well aware of what America what our national thought process was after 9-11. No logical thought, no dissent allowed. Find somebody who you think is a victim and you kill them all, right? And that is essentially what they wanted out of the American public. Unwavering support for the genocide of Gaza. And the way he framed it, you know, there's a thousand other things he could have used to draw the comparison, um, but the way he framed it was very intentional, in my opinion, that was like, OK, you know, you guys had your Iraq war where you just got to take your frustration out on someone. Now we get the same thing is we can just sort of point to this group, say they're all guilty by association and just kill them all. And I remember thinking like, oh, OK, this is a very clear sign that the Israeli government knows what happened to America and they're looking to do the same thing. 
Now, one thing I will say is that I know that found purchase with a disappointingly large number of people in the U.S. still, but I don't think it was as effective as Netanyahu might have hoped it would have been. And I do think we have to chalk that up on some level to (laughs) anti-U.S. propaganda, right, where we're actually telling the narrative of the history in a different way through a different lens. And it's not just, you know, Arab people that know this now. Just as an example, uh, you know, I went down to that November 4th mobilization for Palestine, right? Like part of the Pittsburgh contingent. And there was this young Arab dude on the bus. And, you know, I was one of the people like that was handing out lunches and, you know, leading some chants and shit like this on the bus. And, you know, I came back and this guy said to me, he's like, wow, it's so good to see so many white people out for Muslims. I can't believe it. Like, I'm not bullshitting you. I'm not making this story up or anything like that. But I do think that was a cool anecdote to show that that kind of rote stuff, while it's still more effective than we would hope, has lost its effectiveness at some level, especially with the younger generations. And I think we can get into, you know, how this is happening and why and the limits of it and everything like that later. But again, I think we have to recognize, you know, the the TikToks, the podcasts, um, the political organizing more than anything that people are engaging with as doing the kind of counter propaganda work to expose these lies, to expose this bullshit, to humanize the people of the Levant and the global South broadly at this point in time is actually starting to work at some level. Totally agree. Yeah, I'm a little less optimistic about that, but I just want to take this back a little bit further when we're talking about this comparison between Afghanistan and Iraq. And I think we're conflating the two, and I I think there's good reason to conflate the two. Uh, But sometime around, I think it was 2006 or 2007, there became differences between the good war and the bad war. You had that kind of quotation from somebody like Barack Obama, state senator of Illinois, saying that Afghanistan is the good war. That's the war that we need to be fighting versus Iraq, which is the bad war, the war that we were propagated into going into that was illegitimate mistake. Right. It was a mistake. It wasn't handled correctly. Whereas Afghanistan was the good war. We went there. We had good intentions, but it was just mismanaged by the Bush administration. I think the reality is that both of them were wars of propaganda, just in different ways. The Iraq war was really based on just outright, complete and utter fabrication of information. There was nothing there on any level, sense or array. I mean, they even tried to make connections between Saddam Hussein and September 11th because they recognized that people will actually have a visceral connection to the loss of American lives on American soil, no matter the ahistorical nature in which it's framed. Whereas Iraq, there was nothing. When was the last time an Iraq missile killed an American at that point? I mean, had it happened since the Gulf War? You can see that now with... There was obviously an event that led to what's happening in Israel and and in Palestine right now. And obviously we're all against what's going on. But there was an event that happened, just like there was an event that happened that led to the war in Afghanistan. We're against that. So as you said, Levi, they used that to go into Iraq. And you can see politicians now just maneuvering us this to put us in a position to go into Iran, right? I mean, like if you listen to that Republican debate, like every single politician up there all talked about how, you know, Iran needed to be taken care of and all this. I mean, it was, it's scary. And you can see it's like the exact same thing happening. Yeah, what's the famous line? 
we don't want that smoking gun to be a mushroom cloud. And I believe that was Condoleezza Rice talking about the justification for invading Iraq. That if we're waiting for a massacre in order to justify the war, then we're waiting too long. Is the justification for a preemptive strike. But I think Americans in general have a revulsion towards the concept of an outright aggressive war. They need it to be framed a little more tightly in terms of the propaganda as a defensive war. I feel like that's a big part of result of the propaganda, right? Like Americans are made to think that we're the true, we're the good guys, right? And therefore the rules don't apply to us, right? Like how many times have we heard Anthony Blinken say the quote unquote rules-based international order in the past two years, as if that's a thing America has ever given a shit about, right? We overthrow democracies with impunity, we invade countries, etc. Well, it's America's rules is what you have to remember. You know, it's, the, the, it's America's that's, international that's rules yeah. that don't apply. You know, the thing I always try and show people who I think are, are not really aware of, the, of how America sees itself is right before the invasion of Iraq in February of 2003, U.S. Congress passed a law called the Hague Invasion Act, which says... If any U.S. soldier or military personnel is held in The Hague, tried by the International Criminal Court, America has the right to invade and free them. And not only an American, but an Israeli soldier. There's only two countries, American and Israel. And I think that is a, that law is still on the books, by the way. It is a concrete result of the propaganda that makes Americans think it's okay if we do preemptive war. But it's not okay if someone else does preemptive war. It's okay if our allies use white phosphorus, but it's not okay if someone else uses white phosphorus because we're the good guys and we know we're the good guys because we told ourselves we're the good guys. And it's just this cycle that will never end until we, until we forcibly break it. Yeah, it's definitely a war crime when Russia bombs a residential block, but you know, it's complicated with Israel, right? There's probably tunnels underneath it. Defending themselves. Yeah. <laughs> There were needles in those hospitals, you know? You got to defend yourselves. Uh, some Israeli could have gotten pricked. I heard they had electricity in there. Do you know what you can do with electricity? No end to the amount of damage. So I think to provide a, a little more focus on what we're talking about, it might even be useful to go through the four concepts that we laid out about what is propaganda as we try to understand what makes the Iraq war a good comparison to what's going on right now in Palestine? So to start with the outright lies, we've already touched on a number of them. I think the biggest one that's on people's minds and people remember are the WMDs. The WMDs that were never found. And the idea of them not being found was itself justification for looking harder and being more present, as Joe's article really well lays out. But I think another thing that sort of has gotten lost in the shuffle is Naria al-Sabah's testimony. So she was the person that was claiming that Saddam's soldiers ripped babies from incubators during his invasion of Kuwait. And it turned out that that woman giving the testimony was actually the daughter of the Kuwaiti ambassador, and that was never disclosed during her testimony. And it also turned out to be absolutely 100% fabricated. There was zero evidence for it, and I believe it was recanted later. But the nature of propaganda is that once it's out there, it's out there. People are going to repeat it, and they're not going to check the source. And I think you'll still hear people mentioning 
the comparison between the babies being killed in incubators. And I think, as we mentioned earlier, the reports of Hamas beheading babies. And one of the great ironies is that when people make that comparison, they don't realize that how apt that comparison is, because both of those things are completely and utterly fabricated and unverified. I went to school with a girl who, her dad worked for the OPCW, and he was sent to Iraq to look for weapons of mass destruction. And he came back and said, there's nothing there. And he ended up getting fired for, for saying that. She told us there weren't any, and her dad, from, from her father, so we were like, okay, I guess this is a lie. It's just interesting to, ha- you know, to actually know someone who went over there. <laughs> but I mean, this is the playbook, right? Like, they make the accusation, or they make the claim, they act upon it, and then it's quietly retracted later. But by then, it's too late. Then it doesn't matter. Yeah, by that time, it's already been a headline on the New York Times. The retraction is going to be page eight in small print. Nobody's going to read that. Or it's already been eight days, so it's too late. It's out in the ether. And it's like the hospitals, you know, like we're all focused on this one hospital. And like, again, we're going to be repeating some things on this that we've already touched on in previous episodes, but within the framework of the conversation today. But it's like, yeah, we should definitely be talking about Al-Shifa Hospital, right? And what Israel is doing here. But then we've already lost sight of the fact that at that point, they had already bombed 18 to 20 other ones. We're not talking about that anymore. We're just focused on whether, you know, this is actually happening, whether this was a rocket. And nobody even gives a flying fuck about the, whether it was a Hamas rocket or an Israeli rocket at that point in time, right? The hospital's gone. When things happen in a war zone, I don't have any illusions about my place, right? I'm very far from these locations. I'm usually getting information from sources that, you know, Twitter, who knows what's being posted on there. But when people started saying, you know, a, someone just bombed a Gazan hospital and killed 100 people and the Israelis start denying it. We have to remember that this is Israel's MO. I'll remind everyone of when they killed the American uh, Palestinian journalist uh, Shireen, and I, I can't pronounce her last Abu name. Yes, thank you. But for, I believe, over six months, Israel said, no, 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 it was a Palestinian bullet. She was caught in the fire. We have all these documents. And they basically drowned every international investigator in paperwork and then quietly apologized for it and said, yes, it was an Israeli sharpshooter who killed her. And so this is the nature of propaganda is deny, deny, deny. And then wait for the dust to settle. And then you admit. So when people like us start pointing it out, they can say like, well, actually, Israel apologized. But it doesn't matter if Israel apologized. It matters what people think happened. Um, You know, talking about the woody dead babies thing. I'll be honest, you know, I think a lot of writers have like a solid content strategy. I just sort of get pissed off at stuff and start writing. Um, And what really got me pissed off here was the woman's name of the reporter who reported the uh, quote-unquote 40 dead babies with Jared Sidner. And she went on CNN primetime to start this rumor, right? She's like, I'm hearing from top intelligence officials. So she's broadcasting into every living room in America. And then her apology the next day was in the form of a quote tweet on Twitter, right? So they know what they're doing. If they wanted to issue an actual retraction, they would bring Sidner back on and say, like, we made a mistake, we want to correct the narrative, etc. But they don't have an interest in correcting the narrative. They have an interest in covering their asses and just providing just a layer of plausible deniability to deny people who say you're doing propaganda, even though they clearly are. 
And we're so fucked up over here that even after that, like unseen invisible retraction that the president goes out and repeats it. And he said he had proof. He was like, I saw the images and they don't even fucking exist. Nobody knows what's going on in that guy's mind. I know it ain't much. (laughs) Yeah. Can't imagine. (laughs) It is pretty incredible the way that the news is really capable of covering their own asses in these situations. So you have something like the New York Times that does really great reporting at the time in the lead up to Iraq war. It's just that it's never front page news. It's always buried. It's always information that's hidden away. And that was a big point laid out in the first episodes of Blowback that they were going to only use mainstream, well-accessed, easy-to-find sources, including the Washington Post, the New York Times, and USA Today. But the reality was that those sources were few and far between, and they were always buried. And that's a framing sort of technique, as far as I can understand it. That something like the New York Times can claim that they got it right and they can go back to their archives and point to all their reporters that were actually doing great reporting and just sort of shy away from the fact that those were nowhere near the front page. Yeah, I mean, and then we could have a whole conversation on like just how headlines are written and what that means to that before we even get into like the content of the front page article versus the eighth page article. I mean, most people aren't even reading the words underneath the headline. Yeah, to, to hit on the point about the headlines. I think these serve, what we're seeing now serve two purposes, right? Um, and these were used a lot in Iraq. Is one, to cover the journalists, as Nick, I believe you were saying, and two, to warp the narrative and give this framing. And so what they're doing, as you'll see a lot, is the New York Times, Washington Post is reporting Israel says there's tunnels under the hospital, right? They don't report there are tunnels under the hospital because that puts them at jeopardy. And it can't really be proven. So instead, they report claims as if it was fact. This was huge in 2003, where Dick Cheney would go on background to the Washington Post, leak like, oh, we have intelligence that Iraq has WMDs. Washington Post would print, up intelligence official says WMDs in Iraq. Then Dick Cheney would go on television and point to a report that he leaked that has still not been verified and say, like, oh, here's evidence, even the quote-unquote liberal Washington Post is saying it. And this is just something the media said they were going to stop doing after Iraq. They were done with it, and they're doing it all again during Palestine. And that's just a technique that I think we should stress, and it sounds really easy and almost trite to say it, right? But, like, again, and this is almost going to rely on the reader, the skeptic, to have some kind of analysis of the history behind an entity, right? But like that kind of thing, Israel says, Israel reports, IDF reports should send off alarm bells that you should at least like, before you make a full determination that this is what happened, you should wait a little bit. And then on the flip side, right, they do this kind of thing where they use the different framing to discredit it, right? So like Hamas run health ministry reports this number of casualties. When like, again, we can see what's going on in our own eyes, like the statistics are the statistics and they're all horrifying, you know, but they use it to discredit, to say, oh, Hamas, you don't trust Hamas, right? Hamas is saying this many people died, but, you know, we don't know yet. When time and time again, many outlets rely on the Hamas statistics to actually report what's going on in Palestine, including the U.S. State Department, right? When they actually report accurate figures on what's actually going on, independent of, of this before, right? But if you look at, you know, casualties in uh 
protective edge and all this kind of shit, right? Like they rely on the Hamas run Gazan health ministry numbers to actually tell the narrative that they are. So they know it's accurate. And what interest would they have in like not get, being accurate at this point in time? We've sort of moved on to the second notion of propaganda in terms of the selective telling of fact. So from what I remember, I remember Saddam Hussein being presented as this great tyrant who uses sarin gas against his own people. That was the thing that was repeated over and over again, that he's gassing his own population. That gas was provided by the United States in his 1979 war with Iran. That was never mentioned. Hamas launches an attack on October 7th that claims the lives of 1,300 Israelis. You hear that almost daily. You talk about the number of hostages they took. What's not mentioned is that this was done after at least 75 years of Palestinian oppression and an untold number of dead men, women, and children. Those numbers are never mentioned. So it's all about how these stories are told. Certain things will be said or left out. These are the Hamas figures from the Hamas health ministry. That was never what that health ministry had been called in the 10 years prior that they had been quoted from. It's purely a selective telling of fact. I mean, the other thing is you have to question what those 1,300 lives were. Was it even 1,300 lives? I'm not saying that people didn't die. Men, women, and children did not die. But again, at first it was 1,400, right? And then Haaretz itself, after Israel launches the aerial bombardment, releases some names, right? And it's not 1,400 names. It wasn't even 1,300 names, right? And I'm sure that there's still like the whole process of actually figuring out what happened. But the full story is not told yet. And there was always this assumption that, at least initially, that the mass of these people were just innocent civilians. When in fact, it came out that about 66% of or two thirds of the people that were killed were military personnel. Okay. And then there's also the other stories about IDF attacking their own kibbutz. Right. So, again, that narrative, that initial narrative, that initial selective telling of the facts or even outright lies in this case kind of carries the day in terms of that initial response that everybody just rallies behind in that immediate moment. And again, I'm not trying to say that, like, no innocent people died. Right. That that's just what happens. But again, like this all plays into the beheading of babies. Fourteen hundred people were died. They went to kibbutzes and, you know, just slaughtered grandmas. I mean, we'll find out later, and we're already 50-some days into a genocidal onslaught. The Israeli police found that Israeli helicopters fired on the kibbutz and killed who knows how many um, Israelis. And it's just coming back to this framing, right, of like, okay, we're propagandized as Americans, we're told Palestinians are evil savages, Israelis are always innocent, always defending themselves. And so we have this nugget that is part lies, part truth that 1,400 Israelis died. As Nick says, the number keeps changing. So who knows how many? But we're just supposed to take that and let it reaffirm our, our internal narratives and that Israel can just, you know, turn Gaza into a parking lot. There's one other thing I wanted to, to mention, which I think comes back to this. You know, we were talking about the, the media and their selective telling of facts. And I have to read this blurb from Axios, because I think this is the most irresponsible journalism I've ever seen in my entire life. So this is in reference to, allegedly, after the October 7th attack, 
the IDF found a, f- a computer file on a Hamas fighter that had like the list of preschools and like instructions to go kill children or something like that. And Axios writes, this is verbatim, the authenticity of the Hamas file could not be independently confirmed by Axios. Israeli officials have previously said they wouldn't share information with allies if they didn't think it was authentic and reliable. (laughs) And man, if you wrote that and you're the journalist, you need to get another job. There are six year olds who wouldn't fall for that. Right. And I think that just comes from like a willingness, a want to believe what we've been told our whole lives that like Israel, the United States, we're good. We don't lie. We don't propaganda. So, you know, I don't have any evidence, but this dude gave me a pinky promise that he's telling the truth. So I'm going to use that (laughs) as justification for a genocide. I mean, this is just one of thousands of snippets we could talk about that are just, you know, all to the wall crazy. Levi, just to pull on something that you mentioned in the framing with Saddam gassing his own people. Again, I think to repeat this, just because I feel like we have to in this conversation and because we started with it at the beginning where's the historical context, right? Like, where's the explainer for why Saddam has these, right? Where's the explainer for what actually Gaza is and why these people might decide one day to fly over in paragliders and fight back? That doesn't exist. No, because that doesn't fit the narrative that's being generated. And so that's framing, right? And that's like manipulating the narrative of history. It's like historical revisionism, right? But it's like on whose term is that done? Like when we talk about historical revisionism, it's like what history are we revising, right? Like in, in our sense of the word, it's like we're revising like the Israeli state or the U.S. state history of what actually happened here and what actually led up to this point in time. And I would say that that's like a good form of propaganda. But when the Israelis just say that, oh, this came out of nowhere, they hate us for no reason. And the Palestinians, you know, just somehow didn't exist. That's a different form of like historical revisionism, right? Like where you're actually manipulating the facts of history to build a basis upon which a society and your allies societies can understand a situation. So again, it goes back to like, what is the propaganda quote unquote in service of, right? And I would say that on our side, we employ a better form of propaganda because even when we talk about the movements that we are at least in critical support of, you know, if we're doing it well, I think we should acknowledge and contextualize the actual human failures where we can't even get that from imperialists. Yeah, I definitely think it's a selective telling of facts. And as you said, Nick, like history revisionism for the history we're going at prior to I would say even the past few weeks, the average American did not understand the experience of a Palestinian living under occupation. I think the average American probably thought like, oh, you know, Israel took Palestine's land. And what that means is that they fly the Israeli flag instead of the Palestinian one. And not that I think this is worth it, but I do think people are finally seeing what life is like. We live in, the, in Gaza or in the West Bank under segregation and apartheid. But that is a failing of our media and our education system because it has a goal to support Israel and support the American empire. And that people just sort of had this idea of like, yeah, it must suck to, you know, not have Palestine on your birth certificate. And now they're finally somewhat, I would say, realizing, as you said, that from the TikToks and whatnot, if you curse out an Israeli soldier, they shoot you in the head or shoot you in the back as you walk away. I think that is 
definitely falls into the category of a selective telling of facts. You know, we love to talk about the Holocaust and how the survivors of the Holocaust fled to Israel. And that's true for a lot of uh, situations. But we conveniently omit the Nakba, uh, 1967 expansion beyond the Green Line, and just the thousands of treaties and agreements that Israel has broken since then and the constant human rights violations. Where is the mainstream questioning of this idea that Arabs should pay the price for Europe's fascism, Europe's undeniable persecution of Jews, which does need to be rectified? But why the fuck does it need to be rectified by the Palestinians? Like, who, who's, a, who's asking that question outside of the left? I think Nick earlier talking about his organizing and everything else. There's definitely more realization about the situation in Palestine that has been ongoing for years in, in America. I, I think it's definitely catching up. I think the rest of the world was maybe a little bit ahead. Definitely. I mean, how long ago did we do that podcast, Levi? We, you know, we were talking, you know, all those videos came out from the World Cup of, of people not willing to give interviews to Israeli people and like English football soccer supporters yelling free Palestine. You've got solidarity with a bunch of Irish soccer teams that wear Palestinian flags and have done for years on their jerseys. So, I mean, I know a lot about football and I, I watch football a lot. So I know a lot about that. But, you know, even talking to my friends in England, some of which are conservatives, some of which aren't, there seems to be much more and has been more of a realization of the plight of the Palestinians than this. And again, it comes down to the propaganda that this country has put on its population for, for years. I think to pull on something that Steve actually mentioned earlier, the American state pulled no stops making the connection between Iraq and 9-11 to justify the invasion. Right now, Iran really does provide material support to the Palestinian people, including Hamas, because of a shared interest in the region which overlaps with Palestinian liberation. But this is being twisted by the media to make the argument that Iran is creating Hamas. That Iran is creating the situation that's allowing for 1,300 dead Israelis. Therefore, Iran needs to be eradicated to end this conflict. This is selective telling of facts and outright lies that I really think people are wise to now. I would push back a little bit on saying that people are even more aware of it now than they were in 2003, because there really were record-setting outcry and marches against the invasion to the Iraq war. They still are on the books as the world's largest gathering was in 2003 in the United States against the Iraq war. They just didn't care. Mm -hmm. But I do see it happening again around the ramp up to Iran. People were willing to be okay with the initial bombings in Hamas in Gaza. You know, there was that whole line of getting it out of their system. That's where I'm, I guess, a little more skeptical on the difference. One thing I will say is. If I remember correctly, and there's always different ways you can cut this, but the Iraq war did have popular support among Americans, like the majority of Americans supported it. And I think that's because, you know, the propaganda we've talked about, we scared shitless after 9-11 and we were, we, we wanted somebody to take it out with. And of course, you know, now we're in this quote unquote humanitarian pause, temporary ceasefire, whatever you want to call it. But we're seeing more and more polls that show people, Americans, are very dissatisfied with the way Biden has handled this. And it wasn't this in the beginning, right? I think if you go back to October 10th, you're going to find polls of 70 and 80% that just says Israel can do whatever it wants. 
But now I think people are starting to see more of what is going on. And they don't get me wrong. I don't think the typical American thinks that, you know, Israel should pay reparations and do everything it can to fix its, its long history of crimes. But I do think the majority of Americans, and especially the majority of Democrats, are very dissatisfied with what Biden is doing and do want some form of ceasefire, right? And when I say ceasefire, I mean like an actual stop shooting, not like this. All right, we'll pause for four hours so everyone can get a drink of water or something like that. Um, but Levi, I, I definitely get your point. I'm not trying to overstate and tell everyone like, oh, all we need to do is post on TikTok and Palestine will be free <laughs> because that's not realistic as much as we all wish it was. But I do think that the ability for people to get video out of Palestine is very different from what we were seeing in 2003, just because for a long time that that wasn't possible. Every legacy media outlet had to subject itself to IDF censorship. And now, you know, try as they may to, to stop them, people are able to like post a video that's like, I'm under an Israeli airstrike. I'm going to live stream and maybe I'm going to die. And I think that is a very powerful effect. I mean, I think the thing for me with this conversation is that, and I, I think we have to understand the Iraq war mobilization is kind of part of a process, right? But this all like consciousness is one thing and consciousness is great definitely is a prerequisite to what I'm about to say, but you have to then take it to the next step of political organizing, building political power outside of the ruling class structures that exist in this country right now. Biden, as a senator, took over $4 million from pro-Israel lobbies, okay, throughout his entire career. This motherfucker is not going to stop supporting Israel. He's not. I mean, I, I would hope that we could put enough political pressure on him to stop, you know, what's going on right now at some level. I'm skeptical of that. But the point is, is that I'm not optimistic that the ruling class in this country is going to fundamentally change the relationship between Israelis and Palestinians and the U.S. empire's relationship to Israel and maintaining their status as a colonial outpost in the oil rich region of the Levant. What I am hopeful for is that people can realize the failings of this system and say, look, we need to build something different. I don't know what that looks like right now, but there's these organizations that are out here telling me that we can do something different. Maybe I should go get involved with them. And again, that's a long process. And I'm sure we saw like a ramp up of political consciousness and political organizing after that. Right. We saw probably more of it after Bernie, more of it after Trump. We're going to see we're seeing more of it now at this moment. But again, this is all part of a process and consciousness is just a key part of it. But then again, what do you do with that consciousness? Do you feel good enough and secure enough as like a good person that you have the right position on Israel-Palestine? And is that enough for you to sleep at night? Or do you want to go out and take action with that? Do you want to go join an organization? Do you want to go help put on the march? Do you want to go help put on the rally outside of, I'm going to use the PA example of John Fetterman's office to actually try to affect the change. It's not enough for me to just say like, I know I have the right position on this. I know I'm in the right on this personally, but is that enough? I completely agree. And if you're out there and you read these numbers and this growing consciousness as the iron being hot, that means that you need to go out there and you need to strike. You can't just assume it's going to keep going in the right direction. If you assume that, it's not going to go in the right direction. So things will never get better on their own. That's been sort of the mantra of every single history. Anything left that's been positive in world history has been because of massive actions of social movements. 
So Joe, you did mention that these poles can be cut in a lot of different directions. But one that really stands out to me is in Israel right now, Netanyahu's popularity is lower than it's ever been. At the same time, Ben Gavir and his far-right coalition is seeing a surge in their poll numbers. That means that the right is also understanding that this is a political moment where they can actually articulate that Netanyahu's too far left for to handle Israeli society. Just because people hate Joe Biden doesn't mean that they're going to the left. It might mean that Joe Biden is a commie liberal and doesn't understand that Palestine needs to be treated a very different way. And I think that really pulls into the other notion of propaganda, which is the concept of framing and manipulating the structure of an argument. Back in the invasion of Iraq, people would say, you know, I disagree with the invasion. You might be called a hypocrite saying that you really support Saddam Hussein and the murder of innocent Iraqis. Well, that's not what I'm saying, obviously. But if you say that you support Palestinians, you're immediately called an anti-Semite. They're not arguing on a fair plane. I mean, Joe Biden himself has been accused of anti-Semitism for calling these brief pauses by people that I've talked to personally. Some of these people are really vicious, and they really do believe that, I mean, I, I don't even know how to articulate how insane it is to call somebody like Joe Biden an anti-Semite just because he doesn't support Israel enough. Like, I can't imagine a guy supporting Israel more, honestly. Yeah, the, the framing around anti-Semitism is batshit insane. I'm sure a lot of people over the past few weeks have heard the claim, I believe the ADL is running around saying, I think that anti-Semitic acts have gone up 384% since October 7th, which is just like insane number to try and wrap your head around. I actually did some digging into this and the ADL count like actual anti-Semitic acts, right? So if someone does that, that's going to count. But they also count what they call confrontation. So basically, if you tell someone to fuck off of anyone who is visibly Jewish. So what they're counting as anti-Semitism is like someone walking at a pro-Israel rally with an Israel flag. They count that person as, quote unquote, visibly Jewish. And if you show up to counter protest them, that is anti-Semitism. So anyone who tries to tell you that like it's gone up 384%, blurring the lines between Zionism and Judaism, which in my opinion is horribly anti-Semitic because they're basically just being a racist and saying because you're a Jew, you have to have X politics. So no one should believe that if someone tries to tell you an, you're an anti-Semite for supporting Palestine, like you can just walk away and laugh. But like you said, Levi, this comes back to framing, right? Like one thing that I'm going insane about is the biggest pro-Israel rally, which was at the Capitol a few weeks ago called March for Israel, featured a man named John Hagee. And John Hagee is a pastor who has repeatedly praised Hitler. And I don't mean like he said something where maybe if you squint at it, you're like, oh, this guy likes Hitler. He said Hitler was an agent of God, a literal prophet who was sent to do the Holocaust because the Holocaust drove the Jews to Israel. And as we all know, evangelicals want the Jews to go to Israel because they believe it'll trigger the end times and then Jesus will come back and kill all the Jews. So that framing is completely left out of this conversation, right? Like you have a literal neo-Nazi speaking for Israel, and yet somehow the media loves to say that anyone who says, Free Palestine on a college campus is like a horrible anti-Semite. And that's just another way that they warp and twist this until 
up is down and left is right. So a similar thing happened in England. Uh, do you know who Tommy Robinson is? Unfortunately. I yeah, do. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, he was, he was at some protest that, again, it was like a pro-Palestinian thing. Whenever you have a pro-Palestinian rally, if you listen, again, because I listen to these right-wing shitheads, they all call them anti-Semitic rallies. That's just what they call them. It, it was an anti-Semitic march. It was an anti-Semitic rally, even though it, you know they're not. They're pro-Palestinian marches. But anyway, there was a pro-Palestinian march, and this Tommy Robinson got arrested because he was there just provoking people. And the right portrayed it as him protesting against the anti-Semites. This guy, it, you know, similar to that preacher you mentioned. I mean, like he is a proclaimed neo-Nazi. He's led. He led like the neo-Nazi party of England. He is the definition of an anti-Semite, but just because, again, he's probably more anti-Muslim than he is anti-Semitic than now pro-Israel. I was listening to something, and I forget what it was, and it was making a point about evangelicals and like the hard right in the US, and it said, like, I think I said this to you, Levi, they like Israel more than they like Jewish people. And it goes exactly to your point that you just made, Joe, about they want the second coming to come and all this stuff. So, I mean... It, yeah, it's, it's it's very depressing to listen to. But. Yeah, I mean, if you want to play like a pure numbers game, especially as we talk about equating Zionism with Judaism, I think there are more Christian Zionists, at least that be- people that belong to an explicitly Christian Zionist organization in the U.S. than there are Jews in Israel. Oh, easily. There's just way more crazy Christians out there in general. Right. But to pull on what Joe was saying about what counts as anti-Semitism, so the local right-wing paper, Trib, ran this article that just sort of floored me that they said this all with a straight face. So it says, um, quoting an individual who I won't name, she said her organization has seen, quote, an uptick in anti-Semitic activity, end quote, in the Pittsburgh area since Hamas militants attacked Israeli civilians on October 7th, killing an estimated 1,400 people. There have been 218 anti-Semitic incidences in Pittsburgh this year to date, nearly doubling the last year's total of 122. And they have two pictures of these anti-Semitic hate crimes. One is a lawn sign that said, we stand with Israel, and somebody spray-painted the word Gaza over Israel. The other is on the side of a brick wall, somebody spray-painted in crude letters, Free Palestine. That is another anti-Semitic hate crime, according to this organization. Petty vandalism is not the same as an anti-Semitic hate crime. A young Jewish man could have done those two graffitis. There's nothing inherently anti-Semitic about either statement, yet those now count towards the doubling of anti-Semitic hate crimes in the Pittsburgh area. Especially in a city that had such a tragic event like the Tree of Life synagogue shooting. I mean, you think we would have a deeper respect for what a hate crime actually is because we observed it here. To draw on that, there's a quotation from that same person. Quote, for a Jewish community still healing from the worst anti-Semitic attack in U.S. history in 2018 and now re-traumatized by the worst single act of terrorism against Jews since the Holocaust, these acts of vandalism are particularly despicable, end quote. So there's a direct comparison between the act of an actual anti-Semite in 2018 to petty vandalism today to the acts of Hamas as well, as though those are all equally anti-Semitic. And by a right-wing ethno-nationalist, self-proclaimed in what he wrote, that Israel on a, a state basis is so eager 
to get buddy-buddy with? Again, when we're talking about ideology at the state level. One thing I think that we're all hitting on and comes back to framing, right, and how the media frames is that left-wing support for Palestine is anti-Semitic, right-wing support for Israel is pro-Jewish or something like that. And it's kind of created this narrative, which the media has run with, that anyone who waves a Palestinian flag hates Jews. And while this is a narrative, it's actually been disproven through scientific studies. So I'm quoting from a study called Anti-Semitic Attitudes Across the Ideological Spectrum. I'm going to quote, We find overt anti-Semitic attitudes are rare on the left but common on the right, particularly among young adults on the right. Even when primed with information that most U.S. Jews have favorable views towards Israel, a country is favored by the ideological left, respondents on the left rarely support statements that, such as that Jews have too much power or should be boycotted. Right exhibits strong anti-Muslim double standards. However, in these measures too, the anti-Jewish attitudes on the left are small in magnitude compared to the anti-Jewish attitudes on the right. The right does not have an anti-Jewish double standard, but they nevertheless attribute to Jews substantially more responsibility and culpability for Israel than the left does. Indeed, far-right identifiers are seven times more likely to believe that Jewish Americans should be held to account for Israel compared to far-left identifiers. So put aside everything the media is telling us, like people have looked into this from a scientific basis and found that right-wingers are seven times more anti-Semitic than left-wingers. And if you look at what's going on objectively, like this is not hard to tell, right? The Israel March invites people who openly praise Hitler. Donald Trump is a huge anti-Semite. Elon Musk was on Twitter like two weeks ago talking about how like Jews want to kill white people and now he's getting invited to Israel. I have not heard anything like that from a left-wing rally, you know? And people just need to kind of remember that this is a project that we're all being subjected to and it's a very purposeful media project that they're just trying to like, you know, the word gaslighting gets overused, but it really is gaslighting just to say, no, the left is anti-Semitic while like, the right is just like, Hitler had some good ideas. It's funny how the left is anti-Semitic, but also all Bolsheviks are Jews or whatever they say. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of uh, self-hating Jews out there, aren't there, with the If Not Now organization and Jewish Voices for Peace, like people that are literally putting their bodies on the line for this cause right now. Getting beaten up by the cops for it, and they have the audacity to be like, Oh, yeah, those young Jewish activists getting assaulted by like state violence perpetrators are anti-Semitic. It blows my mind, like only through the most propaganda in the world, because you convince yourself that like a cop beating a young Jewish woman is a is a is a victory against anti-Semitism. I mean, it's a concerted effort to redefine what anti-Semitism is. I mean, that was the stated purpose of Hasbara. That's one of the stated purposes of the Anti-Defamation League, then deride as a Israel lobby with a civil rights hobby. It's not actually that interested in protecting anybody's rights in the United States. Its interest is in protecting the interests of the state of Israel. And it does that by helping redefine anti-Semitism as attacks against the state of Israel while making apologia for attacks against Jewish people. I guess to clarify what I just said, there really is anti-Semitism out there. It's just that it's coming from the right. I wouldn't feel scared saying what I truly believed on November 4th at that rally amongst many Arab and Jewish people. I would have been terrified to actually say what I think 
at that November 14th march surrounded by ostensibly Jewish people because they would have called me anti-Semitic and attacked me for it. I mean, I'm just as Jewish as the rest of them. We saw video clips of Jewish counter-protesters there being confronted with things like, I hope you get raped. I hope you get burned. So I don't think that your fears on that front are ill-founded. Just, you know, because we're talking about these as like state projects. The U.S. as a state is deeply anti-Semitic just because of the support that they have here, right? Like, again, like their support for the Jewish people broadly is entirely cynical. I, I think I've made this point before. As far as their relationship with Israel goes, as far as like imperialism's relationship with Israel goes, they would be happy to find anybody that they could weaponize and take advantage of to uphold their interests in that region. It doesn't necessarily have to be Jewish people, and they're happy to, you know, let the ADL and everybody like that run wild, demonizing actual Jewish activists that are fighting against a state project. The U.S. as a state doesn't give a fuck. I mean, there's a clip that's been circulating where Joe Biden himself, I believe in the 1980s, dates, quote, Were there not an Israel, the United States of America would have to invent an Israel to protect her interest in the region. The United States would have to go out and invent an Israel. Joe Biden has no interest in Jewish people. His interest is in having a state there that protects American interests. Right. I also think it's worth uh, mentioning the long history between anti-Semites and Zionists. From the very beginning of Zionism, their most ardent political supporters were anti-Semites because they both agreed on the same principle that Jews could not live in call it Gentile society, right? Europe, that the only solution was for Jews to go somewhere else, which was always the goal of anti-Semites, right? So they found bedfellows among some of the most horrible anti-Jewish racists who have ever lived. You know, the Balfour Declaration, which I know you guys have covered, written by Arthur Balfour, that announced British support for a Jewish homeland in Palestine, Arthur Balfour, 10 years before that, oversaw the passage of something called the Aliens Act, which was specifically written to stop Jewish refugees from fleeing pogroms in Eastern Europe from finding refuge in England, right? So a horrible anti-Semite. There's so many quotes being like, we can't take in more Jews, they ruin our culture, et cetera, et cetera. And yet he's like the champion of Zionism. And this isn't a coincidence that Everyone from Richard Nixon to Donald Trump to Elon Musk to John Hagee loves Israel, right? Because they see it as a solution. They don't like Jews. They would be much happier if every Jew went and immigrated to Israel. I think that's what makes Zionism such an anti-Semitic political belief, because I think I speak for all of us here when we firmly reject the notion that Jews can't be part of a multi-pluralistic society. And that's how you get headlines in The Guardian that say, quote, Le Pen's anti-Islamism in support of Israel seen as an attempt to obscure anti-Semitic past. In reality, that's perfectly in keeping with her anti-Semitic past. Yeah, her anti-Semitic present. <laughs> she doesn't want Jews in France. She wants them in Israel. It's her anti-Semitic ongoing belief system. And I think we'd be remiss not to mention that a big part of state propaganda is just outright banning and censorship. So it's actually a little bit harder to point at censorship because it's literally something that's not heard. But there's a really great instance in both the Iraq and in the last few weeks. 
famously MSNBC fires Phil Donahue in 2003 for being even remotely critical of the buildup to the invasion of the Iraq war. I mean, this guy was a known commodity. People knew his name and he was fired for questioning the buildup to the Iraq war on MSNBC. And within the last few weeks, there's a article going around that a Israeli history teacher shared his opinion that the death of Palestinian people mattered and he was outright fired and his home was raided and he was arrested and held in jail just for stating that he believed that Palestinian lives had some value. I mean, this is a sign. If there's one instance of it, that means that there's going to be many instances of silence that's being bought or silence that's being held because people are afraid to speak out after seeing people being taken to jail for these things. I mean, it's happening, especially at the university level. I mean, I think we've seen it all in headlines everywhere, right? Like from the situation at Harvard, where uh, pro-Palestine activists are having their faces and their identities kind of broadcast on page for trucks carrying billboards, displaying all of this information to dox people and, you know, quote unquote, expose people as anti-Semites, right? Um, So we've seen all these headlines, but I can tell you for a fact, I've seen this in organizing here, right? Like we've had students organize walkouts, et cetera, et cetera. And some of the universities around here threatening to say, hey, you know, we don't condone this. You know, you can't do this on our property. I've heard another example of a student trying to organize another walkout and was explicitly told that if this continued, that his future may be compromised. So, I mean, this shit happens, like legitimately happens. We've been hearing for the past five years from obnoxious right wingers about cancel culture and how like you can't say anything anymore and now we all know that was entirely bullshit because there are kids who are just like signing a letter at harvard saying like i don't think we should bomb children and then they have fucking vans parked outside their house with their social security number on it and all the people who've made a ton of money over the past few years positing themselves as free speech warriors and stuff like that are so full of shit. So I don't want to hear anything else from those people ever again. The other thing that I think comes back, and this hits censorship on two levels, is one, the Israeli state, as Nick was saying, is censoring people in the most literal definition of the word of the government telling people you can't do that. And the American media is not doing a good job of informing people about this. So like one thing that just blew my mind is there is a member of the Israeli parliament, the Knesset. His name is Offer Kassif, and he is the only Jewish member of the party Hadash, which I believe is like a majority Arab party. And he criticized the bombing. All he said was, I disagree with this. I don't think we should be doing this. And he was removed from the Knesset for 45 days, right? So this is the supposed democracy in the Middle East that we're all told to praise and now, Steve, you mentioned Bill Maher, and we should love this because of liberal values and stuff. The democratically elected parliament member just said, I disagree with this. And they removed him from the parliament so that they could do the bombing without any objection. One, this should just tell us all like who we're dealing with when it comes to the Israeli government. And two, we should be paying very much attention to what we are not being told as much as what we are being told. Yeah, and to go to the culture thing, I mean, I, I sent Nick and Levi, I sent you that story about that actress. I think she just tweeted out like, 
they, they should stop the genocide. And she got fired from, I think she was supposed to be in like Scream 7. So they, they fired her immediately. And to draw a parallel to the Iraq war, which is kind of interesting when you, you know, Viggo Mortensen at the time, he was in Lord of the Rings. And, you know, maybe it's because he's a bigger actor. Maybe it's because he was in a bigger franchise. But to a lot of the, like, premieres and I think a lot of the, you know, uh, marketing events for those Lord of the Ring movies, he wore a anti-Iraq war t-shirt a lot of the time. Maybe it's something to do with stature or, or something else, but you know that that's kind of interesting that he never got any blowback from that. I mean, so a, a little bit of a difference between then and now. That's a good point, and I don't know that much about like what Vigo may or may not have faced, but I think like a broader point is that like people can get away with so much more shit, right? Like Harvey Weinstein abusing and assaulting women in Hollywood for decades and decades was this like open secret, right? That's just Bill allowed... Cosby. Yeah, yeah, that's just kind of allowed to persist, right? But then as soon as you say free Palestine, then you're thrown off of like what, you know, I'm assuming would be some kind of like at least campy blockbuster hit, right? If we're on Scream 7 at this point. But, you know, again, like there is censorship here, right? And like this is a left-wing popular view, popular, like extremely popular on a global fucking level. Like the world, the people are with Palestine but the Western imperial states are not. Universities are for-profit institutions run by a board of trustees. These trustees, when not on the board of universities, or sometimes while on the board of universities, represent large resource extraction firms who are interested in keeping Israel in place in order to protect their economic interests. A lot of these lines fall relatively neatly in terms of oil extraction in the Middle East. I don't want to oversimplify things, but I think that's why we see the university so quick to lash out and punch down on Palestinian groups, whereas I, I don't know that there's really any other third rail that universities are so vehemently against. Maybe support for Iran, but for the same reasons. I mean, I'll call out one of our local universities specifically in CMU. And in this case, I mean, obviously, like oil interests and imperialism are integrally related, but like specifically our surveillance technologies, AI recognition, things that police use to surveil and brutalize oppressed populations, whether that be in Palestine or the U.S., right? But like CMU has a really deep material interest in getting all of this DOD funding to continue doing things like facial recognition and incorporating that into robotics and artificial intelligence programs, right? Which again, works hand in hand with the police state here and the IDF over there and their subjugation of like, again, disproportionately brown people here and Palestinians over there. It could be as naked as just oil and everything like that, but it's also much more insidious as I think we've touched on um, in other episodes as well in terms of the brutal tactics which they're sure to deploy as the climate crisis and the imperial apparatus continues to decline. Maybe to wrap this conversation and to pull back on the main argument is in Joe's piece, claiming that social media is really opening up opportunities to criticize and to really undermine and understand where a lot of this propaganda is coming from. But even if we accept that more people are against this war because of social media, is it really that different materially? So the United States Congress at this moment is spiraling towards funding yet another massive war and is in the process of setting aside funding for a third in the name of Taiwan. 
So this is the big so what question. It is important to bear witness to genocide, but that's only the beginning. That's not the point. Being against this war is not enough. You need to do something with that knowledge. Just to shout out, I'm located in Denver. If you're anywhere near Colorado, I highly suggest you um, look up the Colorado-Palestine Coalition. Um, it's kind of a joint venture between DSA, PSL, and then some organic uh, Palestine and indigenous activists. They do amazing work. They organize rallies. They are currently working on like a local BDS movement to boycott businesses that, um, you know, buy Israeli goods and support businesses that refuse to buy Israeli goods. Um, and yeah, definitely check them out. You can find them anywhere. And I'm sure there are tons of other local organizations popping up in, in people's towns. So as Levi said, like the groups are out there. I highly suggest people get mobilized, start organizing because just because we poll and say that we want the bombing to stop does not mean it's going to stop. No, in a lot of ways, I feel like what we do with our platform and Joe, what you do with the platform that you have with the blog and the articles, again, that's the start just to kind of double down on what I said before, right? Like, helping raise mass consciousness. And I do think it's important work that we do. But again, just for the listeners, it's not enough. Not enough for us just to, you know, do this here. And it's not enough for you guys just to kind of consume this media and then just feel content that you 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 may have a the right idea or what you think may be the right idea. If you can trust us to give you or help you get the right ideas, which I think on this you can, but you have to go out and act on that. Joe, we just had seen Romani from East as a podcast on, right? Like, you know, he's talking about a uh, Fatisode, right? Like throwing the stone at the Israeli tank. Like he was saying, and I like this a lot, was that like what we're doing, what we can right now is like us, we're just throwing the stone at the tank, right? But we actually need the, um, you know, the handmade rocket that's going to blow up the tank. And that's going to come up, come through in this analogy, political organizing, right? Like actually getting out on the ground. And building that power, building that political power, because these people aren't going to change it unless we make them. Go out on the streets with your groups, make your voices heard, create the good propaganda, put it out there, support the movement. Joe, thanks so much for joining us, man. I mean, this was another marathon episode that we put out recently, but I felt like the time really flew by. You know, I think this was an important conversation. It was a great article, man. I really enjoyed reading it. We'll link it in the show notes um, so people can check it out and then hopefully go on to support your work. But please go ahead and plug your stuff. Um, anything else you want to plug in terms of organizing? Yeah, definitely. Thank you guys for having me. Big fan of the podcast. I listen to you constantly. Yeah, if anybody wants to check out my writing, you can find it at joerote.com, J-O-E-W-R-O-T-E.com. As I said, if you're in Colorado, check out the Colorado-Palestine Coalition you to take action. A lot of people think that it can be really hard to, to get mobilized with a group, but a lot of these groups, DSA, PSL, what, whoever it is, is super welcoming to newcomers. So you can show up to a protest, show up to a rally, find the marshal, and they will help you out, give you all the information. So don't be intimidated. You're on the right side of history, and I would urge you to act upon it. Amen. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Um, please rate, review, you know, subscribe to the podcast and make sure you go out and support Joe Rote. More importantly than either of those things, go out and get organized. Free Palestine. Adios, paisanos. 